Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, there we go. We were a bit of a sleepy group in Sunday school this morning, so we can all wake up. That's good. I uh, want to pick up in our series in the Psalms this morning in Psalm chapter 3. We've been working through the Psalms, as you guys all know, uh, for a couple of reasons. We're trying to alternate Old Testament and New Testament, and we just finished up First Timothy. And as is obvious, people come and go during the summertime. Uh, and so Psalms uh, are helpful in the summertime while people are coming and going. Uh, that if you miss one, it's not like you're missing the flow of an overall book. They're more standalone units. And as Don said, it's an opportunity for us to learn psalm singing as well, which is, I think, important. So today that brings us to Psalm 3. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, once you're there, then I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 3, and these are the words of God. A psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And may God bless the reading of his infallible word. You can be seated. My family started to dairy farm, I guess, about 15 years ago. Uh, And it was a major life change for us. It involved not only a change in our daily routines, uh, but it also marked a significant change in how many zeros we had in debt. Uh, And it was a great stress to me, and it kept me up at night a lot. I was very anxious, uh, and I was, before that, I thought a person who would be completely immune to any kind of anxiety or depression. I was a high-energy guy, always optimistic and and full of energy. Uh, And here I was, staying up at night, worrying anxious, seeing no path forward. Everything I was going to do was going to result in utter failure, uh, and it kept me up. And I couldn't sleep at night. I wasn't able to nap. I was just an anxious mess. Uh, And if you uh, are familiar with depression or anxiety yourself, you know how the, the weight of hopelessness just rests on your chest. There's just absolutely no way forward. If you turn left, it's going to fail. If you turn right, it's going to fail. Uh, And if you are a young husband and dad, then you start to wonder if you'll be able to keep your family together uh, if you're the kind of guy that can't succeed. Uh, And it's it's heavy. I I can speak firsthand of what anxiety, what depression, uh, what it feels like to lay up at night crying out to God, asking him, please do something. And we're going to look at that this morning in the form of King David. Psalm 3. The background to the psalm, it says right in the title here that this is a psalm of David when he's fleeing from his son Absalom. And so many of you will be familiar of the story of David and Absalom, uh, but if not, I will go through it, uh, kind of a 30,000-foot summary of uh, the the intrigue in the royal family that leads up to this place. Uh, And David makes for an interesting study here in the psalms because he is a man who is deeply human. The Bible says he's a man after God's own heart. And yet there's no more human person in the Bible than King David. He's full of emotion, he's full of anger, he's full of sadness. Uh, He's a complex creation just like you and me are. 
Uh, Don had made mention to the value of, of psalm singing. We've talked a bit about it in the past, how when we're singing psalms, we're singing the only inerrant word of God. There's, there's many good new and old uh, hymns and choruses uh, that are of great value for us to sing. But when we're singing psalms, we're actually singing God's own words back to him. Uh, and there's, I should maybe put it in the church chat, I reread an article from about 2004 by uh, an Englishman named Carl Truman uh, titled, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? And he's saying, isn't it interesting that the Psalms, the Bible, represents such a range of human emotion, and yet so much contemporary Christian music makes you feel like the Christian life is just going from one mountaintop to the next, right? It's always happy. It's always joyful. It's almost frivolous sometimes of how uh, light and happy clappy it is. And the Psalms don't present a God like that at all. And Carl Truman in this article talks about the value of familiarizing ourselves with Psalms of despair. Psalm 88, for example, there's no positive note at all. David just ends the night crying. That's it. So there is great value in working through this. And getting this through preaching, through the call to worship, through scripture reading, through singing, helps to get these psalms into our bloodstream so we can help decipher our own human experience better so we're not left to uh, interpret scripture in light of our experience, but rather to understand our experience and our emotions in light of scripture so we don't get this backwards. Uh, And one example of how this works, what we surround ourselves by and how we start interpreting things Uh, We just sang Psalm 3, and I'll just ask you, if you listen to Christian radio, how many of you heard a worship song on CHVN this week about God smashing his enemy's jaws? You probably didn't, did you? We don't find those kinds of lyrics in contemporary Christian music. We find it in the Bible, however, uh, and so it's interesting... uh, what, what this kind of tumultuous life that King David has, what it leads to, the kind of scripture he writes. So David was a man who had a tumultuous path to the throne. He took Saul's throne after it was taken out of Saul's family, and he becomes the second king of Israel. And he's popular. The Bible repeatedly mentions his good looks. So this is a guy that, humanly speaking, has it all together. And He was also a deeply sexually compromised individual. So we all know the the story of David at night, and he's looking out, and on the rooftop next to him when he can't sleep, he looks out, uh, and there's this beautiful woman who's bathing on a rooftop, uh, and he finds her attractive. So he sends for her to come to, uh, to sleep with him, and she does. He has an adulterous encounter with her because Bathsheba is a married woman, and David has sinfully several wives already at this point. And she gets pregnant in this encounter. Uh, And rather than admitting guilt, what David tries to do is he tries to get uh, Bathsheba's husband home from battle, tries to get her, tries to get him home so he'll sleep with her so that this pregnancy isn't this great mystery. But he's so loyal to David, he refuses to go home uh, in a time of battle. And David really pushes it. He really tries to get him home. And Uriah is so loyal to David, not knowing about the fact that he had taken his wife from him, that he refuses to do so. And so David sees no way forward but to have Uriah killed. So rather than repenting of sin, he is just adding another layer upon layer of sin. He killed uh, an innocent and loyal man to cover up his past sin of adultery. And that leads up to Nathan's confrontation with David that Don read earlier this morning. How Nathan comes up to David, tells him a parable about what he's just done. You're this rich, powerful, good-looking man, and you take the one thing that Uriah has going for him, which is his beautiful wife. You steal that from him, and then you kill him. And David's furious at the story until he finds out it's a story about him. And it leads to great repentance in Psalm 51. And so even though God forgives David... 
There is a principle that is here that he does not necessarily uh, remove all the consequences of our sin. Because we saw it right in uh, Nathan's pronouncement to David that there's going to be war in your household forever now. God, Yes, God has forgiven you. Yes, you're going to heaven when you die. Yes, there is civil war in your household for the rest of your life. Okay? Temporal uh, punishments, temporal consequences don't always just automatically get removed when we become Christians. Part of the discipline that God teaches is that the baby that was conceived in their adultery, that baby dies. And David has promised further anguish in his other living children. But there's also a, a, a note of undeserved grace because after David and Bathsheba get married, they have a legitimate child uh, who becomes King Solomon who takes the throne. Uh, and so even this adulterous relationship, God is working in and through it despite the sin uh, to keep his man on the throne. And this sh- should show us the principle that God is, in fact, able to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. It doesn't excuse what they did, but it just shows God's purposes are not thwarted. He is moving history along. And David looks so promising early on, but we read this account and we realize what a disappointment David is. In many ways, he was looking like Israel's hero, and yet his catastrophic failure shows us why we need to see and we need to be anxious and waiting for a greater David. This David wasn't going to be the savior of Israel. We need a greater David, right? And there's so many Old Testament stories that point us to Christ. We need a better Moses. Moses failed. We need a better Abram. Abram failed. We need a better Noah. Noah failed. We need a better David, right? And all these stories help to build anticipation for the coming Christ, who is the ultimate savior of God's people. And as I already pointed, David is a human and dramatic character, as you will find in Scripture. He shows that, uh, that he is weak, he is compromised, he's deeply flawed, he is sinful, covered in sin, and yet he is gloriously forgiven. And we see also how Nathan's prophecy comes to life in David's family, in the royal family. David's sexual sin is a curse on his children and on his grandchildren, and his family is a dysfunctional disaster for the entirety of David's life. And this can serve as a reminder for us men who are here, husbands, fathers, future husbands and fathers, the covenantal weight that sits on your shoulders. You have, as a father and as a husband, the power to bless or to curse future generations with the way you uh, act. Okay? Uh, God made a covenantal world where one person represents others, particularly men represent uh, Christ in our families. And so there is a covenantal blessing and cursing that comes with the kind of fathers and husbands we are to our families. You are right now deciding to bless your grandchildren or to curse them uh, in the way you indulge sin or reject it. David has two sons born by different women. One is named Amnon and one is named Absalom. And Absalom has a full sister named Tamar, who the Bible says is a beautiful young woman. And Absalom and Tamar's half-brother Amnon lusts after her, and he's so consumed by lust that one night he rapes her. And then after being so consumed with this lust, he's so disgusted with her that the Bible says that he hated her with more passion than he had loved her before this rape. He ruins her life, humanly speaking. She's full of disgrace and shame for the rest of her days. But Tamar's full brother, Absalom, was filled with rage at this account. And he decided in his heart that one day he was going to kill Amnon. And he's willing to play the long game. He doesn't do it in a fit of rage. After many months pass, he gets permission from King David to bring Amnon along on a sheep-shearing trip. And after Amnon is drunk, uh, Absalom's men ambush him and kill him. 
meaning that Absalom has to flee from his father for fear of his own life because he's just killed one of the king's sons. And so he went to a town called Geshur where he hid for several years. And David was conflicted, as you might imagine a father might be in that situation. He loves his son. This is his son who, who he cares about, and yet he's done this, uh, this despicable, sinful thing uh, that can't just be overlooked. And so you can see the conflict building in David's heart, knowing what his son has done. He loves him, and yet he's angry at him. And then Joab, David's advisor, after several years of Absalom being away, he calls Absalom back, brings him back to Jerusalem, but David cannot bring himself to go see his son. There's too much tension between them. And after many years of waiting on his passive father, and this is David's primary sin with his family, is he's passive. He's a hands-off father, uh, and the undisciplined, the lack of discipline shows in his children and in his grandchildren. And Absalom gets tired of waiting for his father, so finally, he burns down Joab's field, and this moves David into action. Okay, now he's burnt this field of his advisor. Now David has to do something. So he sends for Absalom, and they greet each other with a kiss. Uh, I think David is probably ready to forgive Absalom, but Absalom is so resentful for his father that he, works, uh, he sets himself up that he, one day he is going to take the throne from his father, David. He's going to set himself up as king. He's got betrayal in his heart. And he spends four years sitting in the city gates and talking with people and, and telling them, you know, isn't it a shame that my father's running the kingdom this way and, and kind of building support, building dissatisfaction with what's happening in the kingdom, uh, preparing the chessboard for him to take the kingship from his father. And after four years of this, uh, we also have an account in scripture of how attractive Absalom was and his full head of hair. Uh, so he's popular and, and attractive, just like his father David had been a generation earlier. Uh, and through political maneuvering and everything, he, he turns Israel's hearts to him and against David. And finally, once he feels he has sufficient support, he steals David's top advisor, Ahithophel, to come to his side and help set him up as king. And the plan was to destroy his father, to kill all the men who were loyal to David, and then to rule Israel. And perhaps because David remembered that Nathan's prophecy came from the Lord, and that it was certainly going to happen. David doesn't put up a fight when Absalom names himself king. Rather, he flees. And in 2 Samuel 15, 14 through 17, it says, A messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake, and quickly bring ruin down on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the Lord, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my king, the Lord, or whatever my lord, the king, decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And then further in 2 Samuel 15.30 it says, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. And this is also noteworthy because he is not the last man from his family who is going to go up the Mount of Olives weeping. Another foreshadowing of his grandson. But David meets Shimei on his flight, who's one of Saul's old advisors, and Shimei was angry that God had showed favor to David, not to Saul. So he curses David, and in 2 Samuel 16, it says, Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose house you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See? Your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And so David's 
sees in Shema his curse, obviously it hurts because he knows there's an element of truth in it, but he sees this curse as ultimately coming from God. And David can look back on his life and see how God has protected him as a young boy from lions and bears. He killed Goliath as a young man. He conquered the Philistines. But now he is being mocked as he flees from his own son. And this is an incredible fall from glory, an incredible fall from grace. He's been reduced to running for his life from his own family. And in the midst of this flight, in the midst of all this turmoil and this complicated thing, right? He's deposed Saul, who was actually his father-in-law. He's had an affair with a woman. He's killed her husband. There's civil war in his family. There's incestuous rape in his family. This is dysfunctional. Uh, He remembers the glory days. But in the midst of this flight, he sits down and he writes Psalm 3, which is what we're examining this morning. The first two verses here say, It's the Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And this title is actually part of the psalm. So having looked at the background, as we just did, we understand that when David says he has many foes and many enemies around him, he actually means it. This isn't hyperbole. This isn't an exaggeration. This isn't David just being moody. It's actually true. He is surrounded by enemies. His problems are real. And maybe many of you, when you've struggled, if you've, if you've struggled with depression or other issues, anxiety, uh, perhaps someone has meant well but told you the extremely unhappy or unhelpful thing to just cheer up, right? Just think positive thoughts, okay? If you've struggled with this, you know that doesn't work, okay? Just thinking positive thoughts is not going to pull you out of the kind of anxiety and turmoil uh, that David was feeling. People mean well, uh, but these comments are not helpful, Sometimes our problems are very real and very heavy, and David's most certainly were. And so this psalm helps us to see that it is entirely fitting to acknowledge that problems actually are real. We don't have to downplay our problems. That's not the way out of uh, an anxious or tumultuous situation. Uh, It's not just, you know, stiff upper lip and keep keep plowing on. It's okay to confront your problems. They're real. They're big. They could be life-altering, quite possibly, okay? So uh, the Christian doesn't have to downplay suffering or pain in the world. David certainly does not. Our problems are sometimes made worse when we see how our own sinful actions have led us into the spot that we are in, right? Uh, And and many times we can look back and and look over your work and see how you got there, and you see so clearly uh, how sin is involved in it, quite possibly. Not always, but, but quite possibly this is the case. And then when, uh, when an opponent or an enemy uses that against you and hits you right at that soft spot, it hurts especially bad because you know they're actually onto something. And so when David meets Shimei and Shimei tells him that he's beyond hope and he's a man of blood, that's a criticism that actually kind of sticks. It hurts because it's true. He's not just making something up. He's criticizing David over his actual sin. David is actually a man of blood. He is a bad guy, humanly speaking. Okay? And David looks at his dysfunctional family and he sees how it's a mess and his children are out of fellowship with each other. There's a war going on and he can see. You know, surely he sits back and thinks, had I just had a bit of self-control with that Bathsheba incident, it wouldn't have had to go this way. Or maybe if I would have repented and confessed to her husband, it wouldn't have had to go this way, but instead I killed him. And so no doubt, if you're David, you're laying up at night in turmoil thinking about what you have just done to your family and the way you have cursed them with your sin. And when we think about that, no doubt we can see ourselves in many of those situations, even if our circumstances are somewhat less dramatic. But we see so much in the humanness of David. 
Uh, during the Reformation, there's a common phrase in Latin, and if you want to be a good student of theology, you have to know at least a little bit of Latin. Uh, so I'll teach you one little phrase here. It's this, this phrase about justified sinners. What does it mean to be saved? Uh, and there's a, the, the, the phrase is simul justus et peccator, which just simply means at the same time righteous and sinful. Okay? That's everyone in this room. At the same time righteous, God has legally declared you righteous if you have put your trust in Jesus. You are going to enjoy him in eternity in the new creation, and yet your life, if you examine it, your actual lived experience is full of sin. Okay? And David uh, illustrates this very clearly for us. He was at the same time a justified man, right with the Lord. His sins were forgiven. He's going to heaven, and his life is full of sin. He was at the same time just and sinner. So what do we do when we look at ourselves? We see ourselves, we're justified, and yet we're sinners. We're like David, and there's criticisms and taunts and perhaps even self-examination that is condemning of us. What do we do with that? Well, a fleshly way, a worldly way, a non-Christian way to deal with that would be to strike back, right? You strike Shimei uh, for hurting your feelings or for, for agitating you. We want our pound of flesh, and the biblical principle for retaliation is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And why is that? Well, that's because we like to charge interest when we retaliate, right? I want the tooth plus 20% interest. I want the pound of flesh plus 15% interest, right? And so the Bible limits this, but we often want to charge interest on our retaliation, which is why the Bible tells us to turn the other cheek. And in 2 Samuel 16... David admits that he sees Shimei's curse as actually coming from God. God was using Shimei to bring David to repentance. So the criticism is true. It, it lands well. And he says, Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me, repay me with good for his cursing today. Okay? So what does David do when an accusation comes his way? He doesn't try to deny it. He doesn't try to strike back. He accepts it. God put those words in the mouth of his critic, okay? And maybe in the, in the mouth of your critic as well. Maybe they're onto something. Maybe this is God's way of breaking your heart to lead you to repentance, okay? So this needn't be bad when accusations come our way, even if there's an element of injustice in them or untruth. We still have to examine what's this doing to me? What's God doing in this situation for me? And we live in an age where shame and stigma are, are treated as though it's the worst thing that could possibly happen is that somebody feels ashamed, right? Or that there's a stigma about something. So I'm just going to ask you, is it bad or good that our society has stigma against child pornography? Is that good or bad? Very good, okay? Is it good or bad that our society has a stigma around drug use and prostitution? Very good. It's good. Shame is a good thing. A stigma is a good thing, or at least it certainly can be. Shame can be a gift from God if it does lead us to repentance. And so when accusations come, two things are happening. The devil wants to use this to break and destroy you, to discourage you, to make you think there is no hope for you. 
That's what the devil is doing when, uh, when shame and stigma come. What's God doing? He is leading you to repentance. He's breaking your heart so he can put you back together again. And I think there's wisdom here from the Puritan Thomas Watson when he's talking about these struggles that come in human form. What do we do uh, when, when tough times come in the form of another human being that we might naturally be inclined to be angry or frustrated with? Here's Thomas Watson. It is one heart-quieting consideration in all the afflictions that befall us that God has a special hand in them. The Almighty hath afflicted me, in Ruth 1.21. Instruments can no more stir till God gives them a commission than the axe can cut of itself without a hand. Job eyed God in his affliction. Therefore, as Augustine observes, he does not say the Lord gave and the devil took away, but the Lord hath taken away. Whoever brings an affliction to us, it is God that sends it. Okay, so what do we do when criticism or when difficult people come our way? Don't think, you know, don't think about the person who is bringing you that trouble. Think about the God who sent you that trouble. God sent you that trouble for a particular purpose. God sent you that trouble to grow you. Okay, and that's how David sees the criticism of Shimei. So I do believe Thomas Watson is absolutely right. Don't look at who brought your trouble. Look at who sent it. What is he doing? And we see what David does with this. He takes Thomas Watson's advice. In verse uh, 3 and 4 it goes on. It says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. So instead of being filled with bitterness or unstableness or anger or despair, David cries out to the Lord. He does the only fitting thing. Where can I go but to the Lord? David knows this, and so he goes to the Lord. He sees that just as though the Lord has kept him safe in the past from bears, from lions, uh, or later from Goliath and the Philistines and even from his father-in-law Saul, God has been faithful. Why would that change tomorrow? Why would that change today? God has always been faithful. And so for ourselves too, if we want to make application of this, how many times do we neglect to think about all the times God has answered prayer in the past? All the times he has kept us safe in the past. Okay? And, and we always see the problems ahead of us as being much bigger than what they uh, what we see past problems, right? Past problems are behind us. They can't hurt us anymore. They've been dealt with. They're done. They don't hurt us. The problem in front of me can still hurt me. It can still hurt my family. I'm scared of it. So it always seems bigger. What's in front of us always seems bigger than what's in the past. And, and I would actually argue uh, that when people get older and they start getting nostalgic about the good old days, they're not remembering days that were better than days that are today. Here's what's happening. As God grows us, as God sends us affliction, we grow. We grow deeper in our faith, we grow deeper in our trust, and we, we learn to trust the Lord more. Our capacity grows. And then we look back with today's capacity to handle things, and we look back at how small our problems were in kindergarten when our best friend wouldn't talk to us. But you know what? For that kindergartner, he is at his maximum capacity to handle it. Okay? This is what nostalgia is. Nostalgia is not saying that the 1950s were actually better than today. They weren't. Nostalgia is saying, I want yesterday's problems with today's capacity. That's nostalgia. That's why we are nostalgic about the good old days. And that's why the old timers in the 1950s remembered the good old days 50 years behind them. It wasn't better. God has grown them. Their capacity has grown. Therefore, the struggles facing them are bigger. Uh, but in terms of what we can handle, it's just as big. Okay? And so this is why we see the problems in front of us as being bigger, because God is testing us again. God is pushing us so that we will have greater capacity next time. And so it makes sense 
that what's in front of us always seems more threatening than what's behind us. But how helpful would it be to look back and see the way God has answered so many times, why would he be any different today? Why would today's problems actually be bigger? Okay? And we know this is the way God often works. This is an important exercise in the way God works, and one that we frequently neglect. God is a storyteller, and God loves to tell stories that are cliffhangers. Right? He, he loves to stack the deck completely against himself. He loves to get Israel right to the bank of an ocean and then have the, the world's most mighty military chasing them so that they're literally between a rock and a hard place. And then he saves them in a way that nobody foresaw. This is how God works. God seems to always deliver after the nick of time. Right? It looks like there's no options left. God saves, God delivers just after the nick of time frequently. So if you're in a cliffhanger, don't sweat it. This is how God works. He always has. He loves cliffhanger stories. If you're in one, it's not that God's neglected you. God's telling an interesting cliffhanger right now. And wait, look back. He's always delivered. He will again. How? I have no idea. Okay? Nobody ever knows because that's how cliffhangers work. And so, as one of my uh, favorite pastor theologians today, Douglas Wilson, has said that if you are a Christian, and I agree with his assessment here, that means there's only two kinds of events that will ever happen in your life. There will be happy blessings or there will be hard blessings. But if you are a Christian, everything is a blessing. Some of it might be the kind of blessing, like when you're six and your mom gives you socks for Christmas, right? Oh, man, (laughs) right? It's it's not exciting. It's not fun. It's a heavy blessing, but it is a blessing because mom knows better than you that you needed socks. That's why you got it, okay? So, and the way God blesses us, it's not always exciting. It's not always what we want, but it is a blessing. He is growing you. He is doing something. He's telling a story. And so when the Lord does work out his purposes and our difficulties, we are often tempted then in the rear view mirror to say, oh, see, look, it all worked out. And we kind of give ourselves credit, right? Oh, we managed uh, managed my way out of another situation. Or we just think, well, this is just fate. Things just always work out, and it's kind of this blind, impersonal thing, uh, and not at all. God does indeed work through secondary causes, and secondary causes are just the human ways that God works. So he uses things like human action or weather or insurance policies, but as we've seen at many places, that it's uh, even in these secondary things, it's God working in and through those. Even those are part of the story that God is telling in your life. So when David says in verse 3 that God is his glory, it means that David is delighting and boasting in what the Lord has done. He's not boasting in his administrative abilities or in his military strength or the popularity that he does or doesn't have with the people. His glory is in the Lord, not in himself. He sees himself for who he is, and he sees a gracious Lord forgiving him. He doesn't talk about pulling himself up by the bootstraps or thinking positive thoughts, but he acknowledges that the Lord has lifted his head. Verse 4 says that David has cried aloud to the Lord, and the Lord answered from his holy hill. And so many psalms have David calling out in agony and impatience and even in depression. And we may sometimes think that this borders on irreverence. I remember uh, reading a counseling book a few years ago, uh, and it encouraged the counselee uh, that if they had been through something particularly difficult or traumatic, that they needed how to, uh, to learn how to forgive God. And I thought, that's really terrible advice. That's extremely man-centered. Because for us to forgive God, what are we saying? That we're saying God has done something morally wrong to me. God has done something unjust to me if I have to forgive him. That's really bad advice. That really is blasphemous to say we are in a position to forgive God. Not at all. But that's not what David is doing. David's up to something a little different. When we read about his deep cries of desperation, or you hear about him weeping on his pillow all night long, he's surrounded by enemies, and he's crying out, God, do something. 
And maybe you've been there too, where you just do something. God, it feels like there's just trouble all around. Please do something. And we ask him to keep his promises in the depths of the despair in our stomach. God looks at David's cries like that and he says, wow, that's really good. I'm going to put that in the Bible. So that in thousands of years from now, people are still singing that and reading it. Okay? God's not at all uh, disturbed by David asking him to do something or for calling out to him. Not at all. Because David's not complaining about God. He's complaining to God. And God loves it when we take our problems to him. He's our father. Okay? Fathers love to help their children. God loves to help his children. So uh, if we have a genuine complaint, own it. Lean into it. Okay? Don't complain about God, but do complain to him. Who else is going to fix it other than God? Okay? This is what the Psalms are, frequently. And so getting us to that point of crying out, taking our complaints to God, helps us to see the value of his promises to save and to deliver. When you're in a pit and you're begging God for help, we need to remember that it is never fitting, again, to complain about him, but rather to him. He loves to be reminded of his promises because that's proof that we have internalized those promises. We're actually trusting him. Okay? It's not irreverent to take our problems to God. Where else would we go? Who else has the power to rescue your soul from the dark night, from those dark dogs that are chasing you? Only God. It goes on in verse 5 and 6. He says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. And I think this is the key feature of this passage, is the sleep that David gets. After David has confronted head-on the cold, hard facts of the situation, he's not numbing it, he's taking it head-on, he's leaning in, he takes his frustration, his despair, his sadness, even his anger and helplessness to the Lord. And the Lord answers him, according to verse 4, and now David is finally able to enjoy some rest. David lays down and sleeps. And consider this, what peace must he have had in the midst of everything we just learned about what's happening in his family, in his kingdom, it's all coming apart, and it's all his fault, humanly speaking, and he lays down and has a nap. He's able to sleep. What kind of peace is that, that you can sleep through a hurricane all around you? That is a supernatural peace that only the Lord can provide. David is literally surrounded by people who are scoffing him, mocking him, and literally want him dead. But when he takes us to the Lord in all honesty, facing it head on, not numbing it, he is able to sleep. And after he wakes up, he doesn't view this nap or the sleep as a reset, as though you know he needed some help from God to reset, but now he's good to go on his own again, back to self-sufficient David. Not at all. It's the exact opposite. David puts his head down in humble trust, and he wakes up blanketed in that same humble trust. He is in his father's arms through the night, and that is indeed where he wakes up. His first waking thought is that the Lord has sustained him, as you read in verse 5. Perhaps the answer that David got of the Lord, um, in the form of remembering all the things, all the past times that God has rescued him, and this helped him to rest and to wake up in that peaceful state of mind. But God has sustained him many a time, and surely he is remembering that. He's not afraid, even though he is surrounded by thousands of soldiers, enemies all around and perhaps this can also help you think forward many generations down the family tree to David's grandson, who also is sleeping through the midst of a storm. Right? Remember Jesus sleeping at the bottom of the ship? There's a storm all around. What kind of a man sleeps through this? Okay? What kind of a man can just stay napping all the whole time? Like, what, What's wrong with you, Jesus? Wake up. There's a problem. But Jesus is able to sleep because he is also trusting in his father like his grandfather David had. 
when we take family trips, there's a, has anyone heard of the show Coast to Coast? It's a radio show when we take family trips. I love listening to Coast to Coast through the night. It's always on. It's from Los Angeles, and it, it plays from like midnight to 5 a.m. When it's dark and you're driving through Moab, Utah, and it's weird out. Uh, and it's all a bunch of conspiracy nuts, tinfoil hat type of people, people that have prophecies, guys that have developed some kind of time travel thing. It's, it's the most bizarre show. There's alien encounters. It's, it's terrific if you want sheer entertainment. And often when my family's sleeping and we're driving through the desert on the way to Arizona or something, and I'm listening to Art Bell on Coast to Coast, I'm just having a great time, and I think, you know what? I can sleep at night because all these guys are out there keeping the universe safe from an alien invasion. <laughs> I don't need to be up all night. I can sleep. I can rest. Okay? Uh, and, of course, that's a joke. But, but how often do you think, if you stay up all night worrying, like the coast-to-coast callers, does God thank you in the morning for keeping the universe safe? Okay? Is your sleepless night going to keep you or anyone else safe from anything? No. You rest. God has got it under control. Okay? God doesn't sleep, therefore you can. Okay? Rest. Trust in him. He's got it. His grace is sufficient. And his grace comes one day at a time. Jesus taught us that there's no point worrying about tomorrow because God's grace comes one day at a time. And you see that even pictured in the Old Testament. Remember uh, what happens when the Israelites try to gather more than one day of manna at a time? It all spoils on them. Right? There's enough manna for today. For today. And tomorrow, there's going to be enough manna for tomorrow. Don't sweat it. Don't, don't get ahead of yourself. God's grace is day by day. Okay? One day at a time is how we are to take life. And, of course, this doesn't do any violence to the biblical instructions to prepare, to anticipate, to count the cost, and so forth. But we all know when we go from thinking ahead and planning to panic or to anxiety or to despair. When we're so worked up with scheming and planning and worrying, what, we, what are we communicating? We're communicating that I need to take over. God doesn't know what he's doing. I do. I need to take charge of this story now. Okay? And so what we end up with is 7 billion individual pick-your-own-ending stories that are unrelated to each other, and all of them are entirely uninteresting. Okay? That's not the kind of uh, universe that God has made. There is one big story that God is telling, and we are all little characters in this. And so one of the, the things that helps me when I'm struggling up at night, when I'm fighting anxiety... Uh, two things. One is I'll try to visualize zooming out and think we just saw new uh, pictures of satellites in space, right? This web telescope that you see deeper into the glory of God in the universe. Now zoom out of your little bedroom and then you see more of the globe and more and more until the earth itself finally shrinks into nothing. Do I need to stay up all night? How big am I? Okay, how big am I? There is this glorious God who has made unnecessary to us galaxies just for the sheer joy of displaying his glory in creation. I don't need to stay up at night. Another thing that helps me is I'll read through the Old Testament or I'll think about stories in the Old Testament and you turn a page and 50 years has passed and all the people on the last page are dead and gone and there's a new cast of characters on the next page. It makes me feel very small and I actually like that. I like that. It's not all riding on me. Right? How many times do you turn the page and there's all these insignificant people, and I shouldn't say insignificant, but it's not all riding on me. Okay? God is in charge of the universe. I don't need to be up all night in turmoil. Okay? You turn the page, one day everyone in this room will be gone, our names will be forgotten, and there's going to be a whole new cast of characters here. Okay? Don't sweat it. God has it. God knows the story he's telling, and all the parts are interrelated. The theology of the Bible is a theology of a big God telling a big story. The theology of the Bible is a theology of sleep. 
When we understand God's glory and God's grace and his meticulous sovereignty over the tiniest details over everything, we are free to rest. We are free to sleep even when surrounded by our enemies. Verse 7 and 8, David says, Arise, O Lord, save me. O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. And so verse 7 shifts the trust from the present into trust going forward. David has rested, and now, with a renewed and proper and godly perspective, he looks ahead and asks the Lord to, to remain faithful in the days ahead. He's asking God to arise and to save him. And David trusts in the Lord's judgment to do what is right, and that righteousness will, in fact, prevail. In fact, one of the reasons he's able to sleep uh, and to accept the taunts and the threats of his enemies is his trust that the Lord will judge. Okay? God isn't just a, a happy, clappy deity either. God is a God. God is a man of war. God will judge. And so again, when we're struggling with our turmoils, especially if it involves other people, is it because, is our anxiety because we don't trust God to do the right thing in the final end? Do we need to act because God is not going to? Is that what we're communicating? David is honest about the sin in his own heart, and he has peace because he knows he is forgiven. And he also knows that the sins of his enemies are not forgiven. They're also scoffers against the Lord. They hate God. And so David isn't threatened by them because he knows if they do not turn and repent, God will strike them down. He will strike them with a heavy blow. And we have a long history there, too, of seeing how God strikes his enemy on the cheek and how he breaks the teeth of the wicked. And there's many psalms like this, too. They're called imprecatory psalms. And many people are uncomfortable with imprecatory psalms where God is said to, uh, to act violently against his enemies. But these are the words of God. We don't need to be uncomfortable with them. God actually genuinely, truly is a terror to those who don't put their trust in him. Okay? Does your theology allow you to be thankful that God breaks the jaw and the teeth of his enemies? Okay? Does your theology allow for that? And if not, I would suggest maybe you are in danger of being more biblical than the Bible. The Bible talks this way. And this is a theme that is missing in much of our worship, as Carl Truman points out in his book on the Psalms. These imprecatory Psalms are not permission for the church to take up arms and be violent as the church, but rather to trust in God's fierce judgment. And when we pray for God to destroy evil, we should also remember that he can do this in more than one way. Yes, he can destroy it like he destroyed Goliath, but he can also destroy an enemy like he destroyed the Apostle Paul by turning him into a friend, by converting him. Okay? Uh, so we shouldn't just have a one-dimensional view of what it means like for God to conquer his enemies. Our first option should always be to pray for the conversion of those who would do us harm. And if they do not convert, then we trust that the Lord of heaven will do what is right. And David closes with the summary of what he's written in this psalm, and that is that salvation belongs to the Lord. Of course, this is true in the spiritual sense. Our calling, our conversion, our justification, sanctification, all of it is a gift from God. So salvation does belong to the Lord, and he gives it as a gift. But this psalm, I think, is not looking about ultimate soul salvation, but he's looking for temporal salvation, salvation in a difficult situation. And that also comes from the Lord. So what starts with turmoil and taunting ends with peace. And peace is only real and lasting when it is rooted in peace with God. David knew how much he was responsible for the situation he was in. He knew he was the owner of this hardship. And it could eat him up, but he knows he is forgiven instead. So he's not asking God for uh, 
to be a mascot for him, right? You know, God's on my side. Well, no, God's on my side. Uh, That's never the question. The question is, am I on God's side? Okay? God doesn't pick sides. God is God, and we choose to side with him or uh, continue our futile war against him. Okay? David was on God's side. His sins were forgiven, and he is now living for God's glory, even in a very complex situation. And this is how he can have peace in God's promises. And by the end of working through his trouble, David not only has enough peace that he can sleep, but he's overflowing to the point where he asks for God's peace to, uh, to bless other people around him, to overflow the banks, as it were. And so when we look at this, and we look at our own lives, our own difficulties, and there's as many difficulties as there are people in this room, so we have to make our own application to some degree. I trust we're all bright enough to be able to do this. But one thing is getting sleep may be one of the most spiritual things you can do. When we struggle with our emotions, either in the form of anxiety, depression, anger, despair, or anything else, we can't leave it to just treating symptoms, okay? And I'm not against medication or sleeping pills or whatever, but really, ultimately, deep down, all of our problems are problems of the gospel. They're sin problems somehow or another. Maybe not your own personal sin. Perhaps it's more impersonal sin in the world. But everything is a result of sin. There wouldn't be struggle in this world without sin, at least not the kind of struggle we have. Okay? So ultimately, all counsel, all Christian thinking has to end us up at the gospel. If we want peace in our heart without peace with God, what you're saying is, I want salvation, but I don't want a savior. It doesn't work that way. If you take Christ, you take all of Christ, or you take none of him. Okay? There is no salvation apart from the savior. There is no peace in your heart apart from peace with God. It's impossible. Your sin will eat you up, and rightfully so. Okay? Our problems are ultimately gospel problems, and the Christian counselor, whether it's a professional counselor or whether it's other Christians in the church uh, counseling others, all counsel has to end up in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. That is the only medicine that is ample uh, to meet the problem that we actually face. And when you have that peace with God, you're able to reflect on his provision in your life. Can you see all the times in the past where things have worked out, where God has found a way in a seemingly impossible situation? Why would he be different tomorrow? Has he changed since then? Okay. Why would he not rescue you today? Are you convinced that God reveals himself as all-powerful, all-knowing, and sovereign down to the tiniest detail? And if so, does your behavior reflect that? Does your behavior show that you trust in an all-powerful, all-sovereign God who is working all things to the counsel of his will? Or are your actions saying, I am the master of my destiny, right? Are we repeating that dreadful Invictus poem that I read last week? You're not the master of your destiny. If you have that mindset, your life will not know any peace, okay? Peace comes from submitting to God. And perhaps more foundationally, This is really the question we should ask. Do I have peace with God? If you're a Christian, of course you do, and then you can relish in that. And if you're not, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, come to him. Be forgiven of your sins. Enjoy forgiveness. Enjoy peace with God. And see how the salvation of the Lord will work out, both now and in eternity. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the... uh, incredibly interesting story of David and the way you worked in his life. Lord, there is no uh, mortal who seems to be greater and yet no great man who seems to have his feet stuck in the clay more than David. We thank you for him. We thank you for the way that he pictures your son, Jesus Christ, who is going to come after him. 
and be the true Savior that we need. Lord, I thank you for what we have learned, that David put his trust in you, knowing his sins were forgiven, uh, knowing that being surrounded by enemies is still where you would have him. There is still peace there. Lord, I pray for each one here this morning. Lord, our problems are all different, whether in our soul or whether with circumstances or with other people, with difficult people, Lord, or maybe we're even the difficult person. Lord, I pray that you would use the, the shame, the frustration, the anger, the bitterness, the despair. Uh, don't let it eat us up, Lord, but I pray that you would turn that into something good, that you would turn it into repentance, that you would turn it into humility, that we would turn, know that our sins are forgiven, and that because we have peace with you, we are able to face a, a sinful world with an equal amount of peace. Lord, you are in charge. You are the one and only sovereign. Lord, and I pray that each of us here would trust our challenges into your kind and fatherly hands. Guide us, lead us, grow us. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. The charge is this. The world is full of problems. Sometimes these problems come in the form of inner turmoil. Sometimes they come in the form of difficult circumstances. And sometimes they come in the form of those who would oppose us. Like David, if we would have the kind of peace that allows us to sleep, even when surrounded by our enemies, we need to be honest with ourselves and with God. Without forgiveness of sins, there is no peace with God or with anyone else. The struggles you are going to face this week and for the rest of your life are legitimately out of your control. And there's never a situation so bad that you can't make it worse by peddling harder. Give your troubles to the Lord. Call out and he will answer. He will give you sleep even in the presence of your enemies. How will your week look different if you start each morning meditating on God's, God's kindness to David, to all his covenant people, including you personally? He has always delivered in the past. Surely he will continue to do so in the future. And I'll leave you with the benediction from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.